So it's kind of a unique transition for us because several of the things that were mentioned this morning are kind of where we're, we're turning our attention to. So we finished this summer series, and, and Brandon, about a month ago, was, we were talking through kind of where we felt like the Lord was leading us, and he had kind of been talking through the book of First Peter a little bit, and how the, God had kind of pressed that on his heart, and so we started spending some time just looking through it, and working through it, and, and, and kind of examining it as a book, and, and we decided, or I kind of decided that, like I normally do when we teach, is that most of what we do on a Sunday morning is really just an expression of what God is doing in my heart, like, or in Brandon's per se, but really in mine, as I'm up here the majority of these Sundays. It's just an expression of what God is doing in me, and I sort of spill it out to you. And the fact that the Holy Spirit uses any of that that's relevant to you is amazing, right? Because it's really just God stirring in my soul things that I need to know or I need to work on or are breaking in me. And then I just sort of bring them up here. And so First Peter is a really interesting book because it's a very personal book. It's written very deeply um, to a group of believers that are living, as Jake kind of mentioned, in a lot of discouragement um, because life is really hard. And the book is really personal in that nature because it addresses very personal things like hope and trust and marriage, suffering and trials and pain. It addresses things that are very near to my heart, things that are not easy to always talk about, things that are very personal in nature, which is not what we do real well as a church, big C anyway. We don't do real well with the personal in nature things because, number one, we don't like to be vulnerable, and number two, we don't know what to do when it happens. And so we tend to dance around those things and find common themes where we can come in here and for 25 minutes on a Sunday feel better about life and walk out encouraged. But the truth is that if we don't deal with the realities that are going on in our life, it's really hard for us to mature and grow as followers of Christ. And so 1 Peter is a letter that is written that way, as a way to mature in the middle of life's really difficulties. Because here's the truth, right? Life, life is hard. Life is really hard. My dad used to tell me that a lot as a kid. I would say something like, Dad, I don't want to move all the rocks out of the flower beds. It's, it's hard. And Dad would go, life is hard. Move the rocks. Now, we weren't arguing that the rocks were heavy. He, wasn't, he was acknowledging that it was a hard task, right? He wasn't making light of it. But his bigger point was like, look, all of life is hard. So get ready. Prepare yourself. <clears throat> because the reality is you don't get to quit when it's hard. Life is hard. It has a certain weight to it. Sometimes <clears throat> that weight is manageable. And sometimes that weight feels overwhelming. Marriage is hard. Singleness is hard. Raising kids is hard. Work is hard. Putting your financial life in order is hard. Friendships don't get easier the older you get. Life is difficult. Hurt Loss, navigating holidays, and, and relationships within your family context is hard. Having people that you love talk about you behind your back is hard. Life is hard. And just when you think you can't sort of take another piece, life has a way of kind of piling on. And it doesn't happen all the time. It comes in waves. Sometimes, like I said, it's manageable. And sometimes it seems overwhelming. Sometimes getting out of bed seems really hard. Peter writes this letter to a scattered group of believers that are living in a really difficult situation. 
They're lonely. They're being persecuted. And they're facing trials that are, I would probably say, 10 times more dangerous and difficult than any one of us will ever face in our lifetime. And discouragement was real. And in the middle of all that, they're doing the things that you and I are trying to do, like navigate marriage, trying to work in an environment where you're the only believer, trying to live morally kind of upright in a culture that just says, hey, cut all the corners, trying to trust in a God who sometimes seems absent. A lot of things that echo through our hearts are echoed through the letter of 1 Peter. But in the middle of all that, right, in the middle of all that, there's a couple of remarkable things that we learn and that I want you to understand before we dive into this series. And the first is that you're not alone. You're not alone. A lot of times when life is hard, we begin to feel lonely, like I'm the only one that's dealing with this or struggling with that, or I'm the only one that's carrying this. But the truth is that's a lie. Some people mask it better than others. We don't always share about it. But the truth is that what 1 Peter is going to reveal to us is that we're not alone. Loneliness is one of the great tools of the enemy to destroy your heart. And the more you internalize those things, the more vulnerable you become for the destruction of the enemy. So recognizing that you're not alone is really important. The second thing that I want you to understand is that you have been called to a beautiful life. We're actually titling this series, we have a graphic somewhere, I'm not sure where it is. Greg, is there a title graphic up there? But we're titling this series, Called to Life. The idea really is simply that we are called to find hope and joy and purpose in every single breathable moment of life. It's the call to Christ's follower. That this life is something we've been called to and it is beautiful. Even in the middle of its most difficult moments, there is purpose and there is joy and there is hope. And so our goal over the upcoming weeks is to discover those moments in life, in the middle of difficulty, in the middle of marriage, in the middle of singleness, in the middle of work, suffering, trials, whatever they may be, to be able to breathe deep and realize you've been called to something beautifully amazing and that there is hope and purpose and joy in every single moment. And if you're anything like me, maybe you're not, but if you are, that is deeply needed for your soul because sometimes Life is really hard. We don't have answers for everything. So this morning we're going to begin that journey by opening up to 1 Peter chapter 1. If you've got it, I want you to turn there. I want you to turn to that letter as we kind of begin this journey together by really exploring and understanding this idea of hope, that the trials that we face are not meaningless, and that we've been given this incredible opportunity to choose joy. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll be in the first few verses, or probably the first nine or so verses this morning as we kind of step into this new look and understand that we are all truly called to a beautiful life. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather in this place this morning. I thank you for every heartbeat that's represented, for every person that's walked through these doors, Lord, whether they're here for the first time or here for the hundredth time, that you meet each one of us exactly where we are, Lord, that you meet our needs in your perfect and holy way. God, I pray that as we begin this process, as we open up this letter, we will understand exactly the truth that you are God and what that means, exactly what that means, that you are sovereign, that you are always at work, and that you love us 
and have not forgotten us. So Lord, as we move our hearts to your word this morning, I pray that you would teach us. Take a moment in your own heart, just right where you sit, and just ask the Lord to teach your heart this morning. We do this each week. We just want to take a moment before the Lord and just acknowledge that we brought a bunch of stuff in here and ask him to teach us anyway. Just ask the Lord to teach your heart this morning. Lord, we come before you and ask you just to speak directly to us, to teach the people around us, to teach us as a community. Take a moment right where you sit and just ask God to move in the person's heart next to you. Even if you don't know their name, we do this each week. We want to be in the habit of praying for other people, but just ask the Lord to move in them. Even if you don't know who they are. We got to hear each other's collective heart this morning. There's someone next to you that has a name and a heartbeat. Pray that God would move in them. Lord, we ask that you would be glorified as we open your word this morning, that you would teach and instruct our hearts, that you would give us this incredible hope and this truth. And we ask this in Jesus' holy and resurrected name. Amen. So 1 Peter, it's a letter, not a book. We call these things book, but really it's a personal letter. And 1 Peter was actually written to not a group of people like a lot of the letters in the New Testament. It wasn't written to address a specific heresy. Peter wrote a letter to be passed around to all the believers that were scattered all over Asia Minor, which is basically modern-day Turkey. So in between the Black and Mediterranean Sea, if you're familiar with your geography at all, you want to go home and look it up. Modern day Turkey was Asia Minor and there were believers that were scattered all over there. They had, they had in this great persecution, they had taken a lot of the Jewish Christians that were in Jerusalem and the surrounding area and they scattered them way up north because by doing that they could decentralize the Christian movement. And so a lot of Christians were lifted out of their homes, taken to other places. Also, people had come to know Christ on the missionary journeys that the apostles had been on. So there were pockets, small pockets of Christians all over Asia Minor and all over the place, actually. But, but Peter writes this letter to be circulated among those, not addressing a specific heresy, not addressing a specific problem, but basically saying, look, take heart. There's something incredible to this life that you're called to, even though you're facing some really difficult things. Let's take a look at 1 Peter. We'll go down to the first nine verses this morning. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world scattered throughout Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia, Asia, Asia and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, in his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade that's been kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last minute. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you will have to suffer in grief all kinds of trials. They have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proven genuine and may result in the glory and praise and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. 
Though you do not see him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. <clears throat> now, it's quite an introduction. It's a really powerful introduction, right? Because Peter states a few really important things right off the bat. But before we get there, there's a couple of things we've got to understand about the sort of historical significance of what's happening in this letter and what's happening in this time period. And I've addressed these things before when we looked at letters like it, but they're really important things to keep in mind, all right? The first thing we've got to understand is that persecution is real. It's extremely real. The believers that were in Asia Minor every day were waking up to the reality that today might be the day that they die because they profess Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That persecution is still happening around the world today, although most of us in this room will never face it. The most of us, or the most kind of persecuted any of us in this room will be, are because somehow one day we'll feel uncomfortable. We might feel uncomfortable because. You know, somebody made us feel weird about believing in God or did something or something like that. But the reality is most of us, and I, I can almost say 100% of us, will most likely never face death because of our belief in Jesus. Which means today you didn't have to wake up and decide that you may die if you go to church or go to gather with other believers. But that was a very real thing. In Asia Minor, if you were in a Christian community and you had eight of you that were believers and y'all woke up and you went to gather together, literally you might all be killed. So life in its own difficulties was waking with a very real reality, very real reality that today could be the day that I die for believing in this God. So persecution was real. None of them lived in a Christian culture. We live in a Christian culture, although most of you may want to argue that it doesn't feel like a Christian culture. The reality is that living in Oklahoma City is a predominantly Christian culture. In other words, you don't ever really face big repercussions for being a Christian. A lot of us still have things that are very beneficial, right? I mean, the reality is, is that we still have prayers put in our paper. We pray before sporting events. We live in a culture that is very accessible to be a believer. Most people, honestly, go to church. Even though morally we may be bankrupt, we still attend churches. We have 600 and, or 1,667 churches in the metro. 1,667. That was just a couple of years ago. I'm sure there's multiple more by now. Whether we want to admit it or not, it's a predominantly Christian culture. In those days, you may be part of nine believers in your entire region, and five of them would be your family members. Being a Christian was a very isolated thing. They didn't take for granted the idea of meeting together. It wasn't like pulling teeth to get people to come up to something. They lived in community. The church was very different, right? Persecution was real. It wasn't a Christian culture, and the church looked really different. It was not the red adobe brick building on the corner. They didn't have a location. The church, the word actually, the Greek word is ekklesia, which means gathering or assembly. The church was a group of people. It was not a building. It didn't have a rock climbing wall or youth groups or divorce care. It didn't have a 12-week series by Rick Warren on money management or whatever didn't have any of those things. They gathered together out of necessity because they needed to worship and learn and grow together and circulate letters like First Peter, letter, for this letter of 1 Peter and to share resources. They had to share resources. They got together and said, I've got food, I've got this, I've got clothing. They poured into each other. They truly lived in a way that life was experienced together because they had to. It was out of necessity and out of joy. 
Church for us is in, in our Western culture is very much a part of our habitual lifestyle. Very few of us go because or attend or gather with people because we want to do this incredible sharing life resource thing. We usually look at churches as what you have to offer me. We church shop like crazy, right? We walk in the doors, we immediately lay out our judgments, we decide what you have to offer me. Do you have something for fourth graders? If you don't, we're going down the street. Where's your single ministry? How's this? What do you have? Entertain me. We have this consumer-driven mindset. <clears throat> it's really sort of anti-biblical in its approach. And I mean that in the strongest sense of the term. Church was very different there. Now, of course, those are all things that we know, but I want you to just sort of tuck them away because they're really, really important to understanding why this letter is so powerful. So then Peter kind of begins with this incredible introduction. He gives him two really important things to remember as he's addressing anyone that might have this letter come across their sort of lap or their gathering. And the letter would be circulated. So one carrier would take it to another town. It would take it to another town. It would take it to another town. There was no printing press. They'd have multiple copies. Peter wrote a letter and with a courier. They would send it all the way across the sea to Asia Minor. And it would stop at a community and they would read it and read it and read it. Then somebody from that community would take it across to another city where they heard there was another group of believers. And that group of eight believers gathered underground or in someone's home would read it and read it and read it and a courier would take it again to another city. And that letter would get passed and passed and passed and passed around, preciously guarded. Preciously guarded. It's part of the graphe, which is the Greek word for scripture or authoritative text. Coming straight from Peter, who was the leader or the head of the church. And they would guard it sacredly and they would read it and they would study it and it would speak to their souls. Because remember, they're isolated. They're not part of the, maybe the bigger movement of believers that's happening around Peter in Jerusalem. You're out there with six believers in a small area where no one is there to support you or encourage you. You don't have the Bible as we have it to just read or study or you can't go to Mardell. You literally are just there navigating life. And so the letter would come and you would gather around it and for days upon days you would read it and read it and read it. And this is how Peter starts this letter. Listen, to all of you that are gathered, to God's elect, strangers in the world who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, this letter's for you. A couple of really powerful encouragements there, right? To God's elect who have been chosen by God. You know why that would be really important to hear as a believer? And we'll get into election and all of those things later on in the letter. Peter's going to address it. But what I want you to understand today is that when you're hearing for a moment that you are scattered out in some east part of Asia Minor where there's eight other believers and you wake up every day to the reality that you could die for your faith, it's so powerful to hear that God has chosen you, that he has brought you into this and that you're not alone. It's one of the great comforts in all of Scripture that I didn't wander into this mess on my own, but that God, through his initiative with humanity and with creation, drew me unto himself. And that whatever I face, I do not face alone, but that God has chosen by his grace and his power, chosen me. That I am part of his incredible movement of people, even way out here. You have been chosen. You're part of this elect group of people that God has said, you are mine. But in the middle of all that, he says, you're also strangers. You're strangers in this world. In other words, you have been rescued and saved and that your home is not here. Your place of dwelling may be, but your spiritual home awaits you. And it's a common theme throughout our Christian lives, right? That this world is not my home. 
This is not what I have to look forward to. This is not the end of my existence. There is something so much greater that waits for me on the other end that I work through life with great joy because I know that there is something that waits for me because as a believer, this world is not the end and it's not my home. I am a stranger here. In other words, it's customs and it's cultures I don't have to buy into. I don't have to sow them as part of my soul. But I have been given this new identity and that my home is in heaven and that my citizenship, as Paul says, is in heaven and not part of some culture that has political ideologies that I may or may not agree with on either side. The reality is that my citizenship belongs to the kingdom of God. So he says, listen, you've been ele- you're elect, you're chosen, and this is not your home. And the encouragement that would have been there for a believer that is waking up going, God, where are you? Like every day this is just brutal and it's hard. And they get this letter that says, listen, we haven't forgotten and God hasn't forgotten and he chose you and moved and you're a stranger there, so it's okay. Would have been really, really powerful. And then he reminds them of three really powerful things in those first sections that I want to lift out that I think are really important to us. And the first, he reminds them that they have been given new birth into a living hope. He says, listen, praise be to God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, his great mercy. He has given you new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, that is kept in heaven for you. He says, you have been given new birth into a living hope. So we know as believers, we've got to be born again. We looked at what that meant when we studied the Gospel of John chapter 3 when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus. And he talked about being born again and what that might mean. And we understand the term being that I am born into the newness of Christ, that I am a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. In order to be saved, I must be born again. But Peter says that actually when we're born again, we are born into something completely new. We are actually born into a living hope that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Now, a lot of us understand our new, our new birth, or when we give our life to Christ, we'll be born again, into this sort of this thing that kind of takes place in our soul and our heart, like I've got a new life, which is very true. But we're actually born into something much more amazing and much more magnificent than that. We've been born into a promise that is secure. Now, when we use the word hope in our culture, we use the word to express something with uncertainty, like I hope it's not going to rain. That's how we use the term, right? I hope traffic's not bad on 35 going to Norman yesterday. We're expressing uncertainty, but we're hoping for something better. Hope always has this sort of edge of not knowing. So we hope for something, but we're not really sure how it's going to turn out because there's a real uncertainty tied to it. The idea of hope in the Bible is actually not that at all. The idea of hope in Scripture is actually certainty as opposed to uncertainty. When we put our hope into something, when we have living hope, there is a confident expectation that that thing will happen and a firm belief that what God said he will do, he will. We approach our Christian lives as sort of this outsourced optimism that says, I'm going to hope that God does this, but if he doesn't, I'm going to guard my heart so that I won't be too disappointed. But if we really look at Scripture, And what scripture calls us to do when we put our hope in Christ, it is to put our hope firmly into this anchored point of certainty that we have been rescued and redeemed, pulled out of this life, that our citizenship is heaven, and that will never spoil, perish, or fade. 
that we have been born into something that is certain and it is a promise of God and it is alive. In other words, we've been born into something amazing, full of purpose. The new birth that comes is not just a promise that eternal life is waiting for us when we die. When we're born again, we are born into the certainty of that hope that begins today that will never perish, spoil, or fade. Think about everything in this world. It will perish, it will spoil, or it will fade. Every single thing except the newness in Christ. New life in Christ is the certain thing that never ends. It's the promise that is eternal. So when life goes and begins to beat us down, what we do is we anchor in the certainty that God has promised, promised that this life is not only not the end, but that I have abundant, true, real life today. I've been born into a certain hope. You wouldn't believe how many people I talk to that are hopeless, and yet they've given their life to Christ. They're actually believers, yet they feel like they're hopeless. They're washed over. They're, they're wandering like nothing's ever going to get better. It's because we've got a broken definition of what hope is. We're putting our hope in things that will perish, spoil, and fade. But the reality is, is having a new hope in Christ means that I firmly believe with certainty that God is who he says he is. And that he's going to do what he says he would do. And then my new life does not begin when I die, but that I can have joy in this one. So he says, listen, church, it's scattered around Asia, all of Asia Minor. You've been born into a new hope, a living hope, with deep certainty. Don't wonder. Don't be anxious. Don't worry. Because you have a firm foundation in Christ. That's kind of what he sets up. And that will never perish, it'll never spoil, and it will never fade. He goes on to tell them this, the trials that you're facing, they're not meaningless. So he says, in this you will fade, you will greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while you will have to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. They've come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and the praise and glory and honor which Jesus Christ has revealed. Your trials are not meaningless. You know, I've often wondered in my own life, like, why I have to walk through the things I walk through. Why does this continue to happen? Or why do we struggle with this? Or why is life hard in this area? Why am I suffering this? Or why did I suffer loss? Or why does this never get better, right? I'm sure we've all can echo or be in a sort of similar mindset that I've had. Like, what's the purpose? Whether it's to you or whether you've wondered that for somebody else. And I guarantee you that somewhere along the way, there were families waking up in Asia Minor that were just saying, I don't know that we can do this anymore. Life was better. You know, these families that are struggling and they gave their life to Christ, actually things didn't get better. That more challenging and more complicated and more difficult. And Peter acknowledges that they're suffering in the world and that they are suffering. When we do our best to try and paint and gloss over suffering and pretend it doesn't exist, we're not doing each other any favors. The reality is Scripture acknowledges that life is hard. Scripture acknowledges that you will suffer. Scripture acknowledges that you will face trials. But Scripture also acknowledges that they are not meaningless. What it means is that there are moments in our trials that are opportunities for God to display his 
incredible and perfect glory. Listen to what Peter says. He says this, when you face these trials in grief, they've come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which, perish, which perishes, gold does, even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine, and that it may result in the praise and honor and glory of the Lord. So he says, listen, these trials that you're going through, there's two things here I want you to see, he says. The first is that I want you to understand that like your faith, right, it's going to be refined that process of melting down and scraping off the slag and being made into something pure. Like when you are put through trials and suffering, your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, is being refined. In other words, you are maturing and God is growing you into a person. He is sanctifying you, making you become more like Christ through the difficulties that we walk through. Life is hard. But God uses those hardships to refine our faith, which is greater than anything this world could ever offer. You have all the money in the world, all the gold, all the silver, though it's purely refined and all the garbage is taken out. And the world says, this is the most valuable thing. Peter says, it's not. Your faith that's been refined by the difficulties that you've walked through. That is now, most of us don't want to hear this, right, that we walk these trials and that God is using those trials and struggles as a refining or a sharpening process for our faith so that we may trust him more. We just want God to take it all away because most of us aren't interested in maturity in Christ. We're interested in relief. We would rather have temporary relief than maturity in Jesus. We'd rather have temporary comfort than to know the heartbeat of God more. Now, we would never say that out loud, but it's the truth. Just listen to how you pray for things, how I pray for things. God, take this, remove this, take this away. Don't let this happen. Stop this. All we usually want is God to relieve my struggles. Make them stop. What Peter says, though, is something much more powerful. He actually says, that when they happen, when we're going through them, we should be living in this anticipation that God is strengthening us, preparing us for whatever may come next, sharpening and refining our faith, which is greater than anything this world could ever offer. And he couples that by saying, so that God may receive the glory, honor, and praise. See, most of us desire for the, in our struggles and when life is hard, we desire the relief. But what if we ask ourselves, God, in the middle of whatever I'm dealing with, I pray that you would be glorified. I pray that you would be exalted. I pray that I may walk out of the other side knowing you more or that people may see you in my hurt. We're usually so self-centeredly focused, and me especially, so self-centeredly focused on God removing the frustration, temptation, hurt, pain, whatever it is, relieving my heart and my life of whatever is difficult. I'm so uninterested in him being glorified in me. I'm much more interested in me being comfortable. And Peter's telling these believers, look, there's an opportunity for God to be glorified in your hurt. There's an opportunity for God to be glorified in your life when life is hard. Maybe we should change what we pray for. Instead of saying, God, fix this, take this, remove this. Say, God, strengthen me, help me understand and make my faith deeper so that I might know you more. And ultimately, God, whatever happens, I pray that you would be glorified in this. 
no matter what I have to walk through, that you would be glorified. Trials aren't meaningless. And then finally, I want you to hear this last thing he says. He says this. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you're receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your soul. This is really powerful to me. Because um, this is not where my heart is. So he says, listen. Though you've walked through these things, though you don't see him, you love him. Though you don't see him now, you believe in him. And he goes, and you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Which if you've ever really gone through something incredibly difficult, right? And maybe you've experienced this. Something that should shatter your world. And yet the Holy Spirit somehow gives you this peace. This understanding. This sort of thing that says... There's a joy buried in here, not a happiness, not like, oh, yay, hand clapping, but like a, a joy that just says I should be shattered, but there's something bigger at play. That's the inexpressible joy that Peter's talking about. Yeah, I'm facing death, persecuted. I could die today, but you know what? I get to draw breath and wake up. That's an inexpressible. The world doesn't understand that. And here's how we have to, the question we have to ask ourselves is that if you're not, the life is not defined by an inexpressible joy, as a believer, you have to ask yourself the question, why? So if you're a follower of Christ and you've claimed and you've surrendered your heart to him and you've claimed to put your trust and hope in him and your life, even in its hardship moments, is not defined by an inexpressible joy. And I'm not talking about a hand clapping, jumping jack, jumping around, sort of fake smile, like everything's good, you know, not talking about that at all. I'm talking about that thing in your soul that just says, whatever happens, I'm going to be okay because God is real. That deeper joy that expresses even the middle of my tears that are streaming down my face that I believe that God is still at work. And for the watching world that doesn't know him, it's inexpressible. If your life is not defined by an inexpressible joy, you have to ask yourself why. And it's a really hard question to ask. And I think the answer to that question actually comes in the book of James, where James says, Consider it joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. We know the testing of your faith develops perseverance and perseverance. You remember that whole section. But he says something really powerful in there. When you're facing trials, consider it joy. In other words, it is a choice. You have a choice how you are going to see and face the world in the middle of life's difficulties. You have a choice how you're going to face the world when you walk out of here. You can blame everybody else around you for all the things that are going on. You can get mad at the world. You can be resentful and bitter. You can be angry and hate-filled. You can be mad at God, mad at people, mad at your ex, mad at your kids, mad at whatever. You absolutely can. But if you're asking yourself in your heart, like, why am I not filled with an inexpressible joy? Then I ask you, right, the question, are you taking the choice, the choice in your life to look at your life and say, I'm going to find the joy in Jesus here. As hard as it may be, the fact that he has strengthened my faith, which is greater worth than gold, and that he may be glory, he may receive the glory and honor and praise and whatever this difficult, life hard, complicated situation may be, I have the choice today to decide how I'm going to face it. 
if I'm going to trust that God is who he says he is, that he has given me new birth into a living, certain, deep, real hope in which he is strengthening my heart for something greater, I believe, sharpening my soul to make me know him better so that he might receive glory, honor, and praise. I'm going to believe all that or I'm going to be mad that God let me walk through another hard thing. I meet bitter and resentful people all the time. And the truth is, I'm often one of those people. Often. I'm more frustrated about what God won't take out of my life than I am the things that he's given me. I'm more frustrated to walk through something that I don't want to actually go through when I just want it all to go away. That I choose bitterness and resentment and frustration instead of joy, inexpressible and glorious joy. Because the majority of my life is focused on me. Maybe that's you, maybe it's not. But the truth is today, you have a choice on how you're going to see your life. You can be frustrated that there's no more dollars. You can be frustrated you didn't get the job you want or that your spouse is doing this or that he does this or she does that. You can be frustrated that your boss never happens this way or does this thing. Or you can, there's a zillion things you can choose to see life through that lens. Or, you can choose an expressible and glorious joy. Not happiness, high-fiving, like Christian cliche, kind of cliche, you know, Jesus lemonade-making kind of stuff. Like, not, none of that. But real true joy that just says, yeah, this, this really sucks right now. Honestly, it's just hard. And I hate that I'm walking through this, but here's the thing. I believe that God is who he says he is. I have a living hope, and I'm certain of that. I believe that my trials aren't meaningless, which means God's allowed me to walk through this for some purpose. I want to see what it is. Maybe it's knowing him more. Maybe it's trusting him more. Maybe it's becoming more like him. I don't know, but they're not meaningless. And three, I'm going to choose joy. I'm going to choose an inexpressible joy that should say I should be mad or hurt or wounded, but I'm going to choose not to let that define me. I'm going to choose God's glory. That's how I choose to live. Look, life is hard. It's hard. I'm not going to trivialize it by telling you that you're to just snap out of it. But it is a choice to decide how we're going to live in it. What we're going to see over the coming weeks is that we've been called to a beautiful life. Something incredible. We've been called to beautiful marriages, beautiful workplaces, beautiful home lives, beautiful outlooks, beautiful neighborhoods. Not because they're perfect, but because we are the picture of Christ in them. And that we can, in every moment, every breathable moment of life, find hope and joy and purpose in Christ. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather in this place this morning. Thank you that you are uh, real and you are true and you are right. And the Lord, we face all kinds of struggles. Life is hard, and it's such an understatement to even say that because I don't even begin to understand what the people in this room are walking through. Sometimes we think each other's struggles are trivial. Sometimes they're just overwhelming. But the truth is, we've all got things that we're walking through. And so, God, as we come before you in the middle of those things, we want to recognize that we've been born as believers into a new hope, a real living hope confident expectation that you are who you say you are, that you will never leave us nor forsake us, that you will walk alongside us and with us and guide us and never, ever let us be.
that the struggles and trials we face aren't meaningless, God, but they're designed with purpose so that we might see you, we might know you, and that you might be glorified. And so, Lord, show me the purpose in my struggle. Maybe I won't see it this side of heaven. I'll just trust you. And fill me. Let me be a person that chooses to see my life with joy, to choose inexpressible and glorious joy, to approach life that I'm not going to let those things define me or beat me down, but that you have given me life in Christ and that I can be the light in the neighborhoods around me, the workplaces around me, in my own family. And the Lord, I can, can, I can choose joy, inexpressible and glorious joy, not just high-fiving and handshakes and smiles, but real deep down, it's going to be okay. God is so good. Be glorified in me, joy. So Lord, as we close our time in worship this morning, I pray that you would press those things on our soul, echo them through our hearts, and make us people that not only say them, but deeply believe them from the bottom of our hearts to the top of our lungs. Let us sing and rejoice in the God that has given us hope in Christ, confident, assured, and true expectation that Jesus is alive. You are our hope, and you are alive, Lord. Let us stand together and close our time in worship this morning.